Good morning, everybody. I tell you what, I don't know when you woke up. I don't know what it looks like out there now, but it was a white Christmas this morning when I woke up. Car was frosted over completely. It was great. I can't wait. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? There'll be many crazy shoppers and family you can't stand and loved ones are near. Okay, it's great. Hey, uh, real quick, before I jump into today's message in our Christmas series, I just want to tell you real quick, uh, this is our uh, a formal note that this is our congregational meeting. Here's how that looks for those of you who are new to Kingsway or visiting Kingsway. This is it. This is about as meetingly as it gets. So in your bulletin, you'll notice that there are two tear-outs, so there's really three sections today. You could tear out the one and turn it in at the end. That's kind of your Get Connected card. Let us know you were here, all about you, stuff you got going on in your life. And then the first part is also the congregational vote. So you can vote over the elders and also the school board members. And if you will, as you're leaving today, at the back of the room, there's tables back there with boxes. Just drop those in there on your way out the door later today. Please don't get up right now and do that. And, uh, and then you're good. there you go. Our congregational meeting is done quickly painless, wasn't it? All right, so real quick, before I jump in, I, uh, I'm going to tie this into my message, though I just kind of learned some more details this morning. So right now in India, there is a massive flood going on. We have a missionary in India. Uh, he's the missionary we support with the most funding and everything, and uh, they're doing a fantastic work, but they are under a lot of water. In fact, Chennai, there's really two major areas where the mission takes place. There's lots of them, but two major ones, the city of Chennai, and then, and then away from there, I believe it's south of there, um, also is where like the boys' home and the girls' home and everything else takes place. And both are getting drenched under rain, but especially in Chennai, in some places there's up to 10 feet of water in Chennai. Yeah, it's causing a big deal. So um, lots of, there are, literally there are people dying. There's um, dead bodies floating through the streets. It's a big deal. But here's some really kind of cool stories of the way God is using um, Care India. And one of the things, uh, a number of years ago, P.B. John, our missionary, wanted to build a hospital, and uh, he built it, and it just never got going. And when I got to go visit, I don't know, three or four years ago when that was, um, his heart was just broken. He just felt like he'd wasted God's money and God's resources. Here's this hospital. It's just sitting empty, and he didn't know why. Why did God move them to do this, and then nothing, and then nothing, and then nothing. He was just heartbroken. And yet right now, it's full of people that they're helping serve through the flood. And I just thank God for his faithfulness. Yeah, I thank God for his faithfulness in advance. We don't always know why God does stuff, but when he does it, it's like, oh, that was awesome. Good job, God. The other thing, I uh, heard, just heard the story this morning from Dale Justice, one of the guys you're voting for, an elder. Click yes, great man. And uh, Dale told me this story. He said there were seven uh, families connected to Care India. Seven, by the way. It's a good godly number, right? And uh, they don't know why. They're, these are all, um, I don't know how to say this. They're, they would be what you would call uneducated folk. They work in the local shrimp farms, um, and, and uh, they literally, all of them, got the same sense, just suddenly, we need to go. So they literally hung their pots and pans up high, and they all left. They went to high ground, and then the floodwaters came. I don't know how you explain that stuff, apart from God doing something amazing in the lives of people. But I think it'll tie in well with where we are, because, see, we live in this great country right now in this beautiful building. It's greatly decorated, isn't it? Thank God for all the people who put on the decorations. And, man, look at this place. Looks fantastic throughout the building. I did like 15 minutes worth of work. You would expect that. It was great, though, all the other people who showed up to help. But we live in this great country. We have all these, you know, gifts we could buy and people we're gathering with and eating food and celebrating. All these great things are happening. And yet somewhere else in the world, Christmas is going to be hard, very hard for another group of people. And you know what? That'll take us back to the first Christmas, which we're going to do in a moment. But before we do that, let's just pray right now for our friends in Chennai. Father God, 
Lord, uh, thank you for being present in India. Thank you, God, for building this hospital years before it was needed this way. Thank you, God, for moving and stirring in the hearts of people. God, thank you for using Carrie India yet again to love and serve others in the name of Jesus. God, I, I, we don't even know how to, we can't even get people there. We had to cancel the trip that was supposed to be there right now, God. Lord, we just pray, would you go over there? Would you raise up all the resources, all the workers, Everything you need done, Lord, leverage this for your glory. Use this for your good as you always do. Lord, we pray for PV. Give him the peace that he needs that comes only from you to lead through this hard season. In Jesus' name, amen. That fits well with today because today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the Christmas story. If you've never heard the Christmas story I don't know where you've been, but if you've never heard it in all seriousness, we welcome you here because I get to tell it to you today. Now, Christmas is one of those times of the year that I love and I hate. I don't know if you're with me. I love it because I love to go into stores and they're decked out and it's beautiful in the church and it's beautiful and like yesterday we put up our tree and my son Levi's just a giddy little boy running around and our youngest Nehemiah who's not even two yet, he's just like is breaking everything and it's awesome, right? He's into everything, and uh, I love it because of all the good, but I also, I also remember those years where Christmas wasn't good. And that's the kind of the thing about Christmas. It's great and it's hard. It's celebratory and it's not celebratory. Uh, just this weekend, um, I've heard two stories about family members here at Kingsway who've had loved ones pass away, too, and they're grieving. And at least one of them I know is here today, maybe even in this room right now. And so they're going to be facing the next 30 days with a totally different perspective than some of us are. And so we gather as a body and we find this, this grieving while at the same time celebrating. The very first Christmas would have been a lot like that. For those of you who don't know the story, what I want to do is, is tell you some components of the story and then we'll go back and we'll look at them. But let me just bring you up to speed. So the way the Christmas story unfolds is these angels appear to a young girl. Her name is Mary. We don't know exactly how old Mary is, but we got a pretty good guess. She's probably a teenager. That's young. Maybe 15 to 17. She's a little older, fine, but it's probably somewhere in that range. And she's betrothed, which is not the same as an engagement. See, in our culture, an engagement is like, meh, I think I'm going to marry you if I don't find a better option between now and then. In that culture, betrothal was the same as marriage, except without all of the benefits. So she's betrothed to be married to Joseph. However, in that culture, you're not allowed to be engaged in intimate activity. Now, in our culture, I realize this is pretty rare, sadly. But in that culture, this was the norm. You, you were not going to get together and engage in any kind of physical activity between the betrothed parties. In fact, doing so could end very poorly for you. It could end very, very poorly, even as far as uh, uh, stoning or other things possibly, depending if you have a very legalistic portion of somebody in your community who reads the law. So it just could go really, really badly. So Mary and Joseph, the, the betrothed couple, an angel comes to both of them and says, hey, you're going, congratulations, you're going to have a child. He's going to be special. God's going to anoint him. He's going to have an important part in God's plan. And Mary and Joseph are both like, huh? Like, I don't even know how that's possible. Like, I sat and talked with my parents. They explained this thing to me. I don't know how it works, but it doesn't work like that. It's kind of how it went, not really. But there's, there's this celebration. Now, we know this. They live in Nazareth, and Nazareth is a small town off the beaten path. Probably, we can't know for sure, but probably a few hundred people. What is the one thing every culture in every town in the history of the world knows about small communities? Everybody knows everything 
about everyone, good, bad, or otherwise. There's a, there's a nice close love about that. And then there's the other side of that. So now let's imagine you're the young couple betrothed to be married. Everybody knows that. You're in this small town off the beaten path. Part of the reason we know it's small and insignificant is because later when Jesus comes along and the disciples even hear he's from Nazareth, one of them says, Nazareth? What good could come from Nazareth? I mean, it's like small podunk nowhere. And so Mary and Joseph are now in this community, and everybody knows. And so Mary's wise, right after she finds out she's pregnant, she goes off to a family member's house for roughly three months. And so while there at the three months, we don't know exactly when she left. We don't know exactly when she came back, but she was there for three months. So she's probably at least four months pregnant. Somewhere between four and nine, when the baby is born, there is this decree that everybody has to go back to their ancestral city, meaning the city of their ancestors, to take part in this census that's coming. So since Joseph, and this is important biblically, Joseph is part of the the town of David, the city of Bethlehem. He's got to take his pregnant wife and get her there. But they're a poor family. They don't have much, and they're from the small town. In some ways, this could have been the grace of God over them because if they had to just stay there in Nazareth through the whole pregnancy, dealing with all the hoopla and rumors and things that were flying around, this could have been the grace of God yet again. But it also was the prophecy of God because the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem in order to connect him to David, this great king. He's going to not just be a baby, he's going to be a king. So Joseph takes his wife, and we don't know. Look, the kind of the way the story always unfolds and you see it told is she was down to the, to the last moment. They just barely made it, and the baby popped out, and that's how it worked, and it was a silent night. Yeah, right. You ever give him birth? <laughs> it wasn't like that. Now, we don't know if she went at the fourth month or the fifth month or the seventh month or the eighth month or the ninth month. We just know that they were there for a time, and then the baby was born. Now, we'll read this in just a minute, but some crazy things happen. Like, they get into the city because of the census and because it's Bethlehem. It is packed, and there's no room in the inn. Now, the word that's used there for inn, there's two different words in the Greek for inn. One has to do with, like, available to everybody. This would be like a hotel. That's not the word that's used here. So take, for instance, the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, and finally the last guy comes along, and the Samaritan helps the guy who's all beat up, and he takes him to an inn, and the word that's used there is this, like, hotel. In this case, this is more like a place to stay, probably more like the upper room. The upper room, if you're not familiar with that story, see, when Jesus takes his disciples for the Last Supper, they go to a town, they get a little room, and it's upstairs, and it's probably uh, a family member's room or somebody's room that they have a connection to or relationship with. And that's what this is probably like. So Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem, and they go to this house of probably a family member. Now, I can't tell you with absolute specificity that's what happened. I can just tell you that was the norm. So there's good reason to believe it. Does that make sense? This is important if you're understanding what happened that night. So Mary and Joseph are going to another town. However, it's like a distant cousin or aunt and uncle or grandparents' town. And they show up at the house. And all we know is that she's now pregnant, very far along, obvious. And they still don't welcome them in. Why? She's pregnant. And they're not even married. They're betrothed. So we could do one-on-one here. We know how this happens. Now, Mary keeps telling us it's a miracle, but hasn't every pregnant teenager tried to say that? 
So her family, more likely than not, nobody volunteered their spot in the house that night. Now, there's a lot of things we don't know. Um, Was Jesus born in a wooden outhouse? Probably not. Possibly, but probably not. Was Jesus born in a cave? It's more likely a cave than an outhouse, like wooden, lean-to. There's also a possibility, this still happens in the Middle East today, that uh, the bottom of the house where there was no room was kind of a big room, and sometimes they'll bring the animals in from outside and bring them into the bottom of the house to keep them safe from wild animals or thieves, but also to keep them warm in the cooler nights. And then in the day, they'd take them back out. It's also possible that, that there is Mary and Joseph in the bottom of the house. There just wasn't any room in the more important places. And this is all important for where we're going, but let me just tell you a little bit more of the story. So as all of this is unfolding in Bethlehem, that night there's some shepherds out in the field. And shepherds, in case you don't know this, shepherds are important people in the Bible because shepherds are often the term applied to like Jesus. He's what we call the chief shepherd, meaning he oversees all that are his own. Elders, you're voting on today, they're called shepherds, supposed to oversee and care for the flock or the people of God. But even more than that, we know this, David was a shepherd. He was a young boy when, when, when Samuel came and chose him by God's anointing to be the one day the king. And so we see the shepherd anointed. So there's all these reasons why God would choose shepherds, but there's also a social reason why God would choose shepherds. Shepherds were outcasts. They were dirty. They worked with these animals that everybody needed, but nobody wanted to be the one to mess with. And they were unclean because of their work. And in case you don't know that, in in Hebrew culture, see, to be unclean meant you couldn't take part in the various ceremonies of the temple. And And there's really, I don't even know how to put this into words that you can wrap your head around. But if you can't take part in the ceremony, that means you can't come into the presence of God. The temple is the place where everything happened. And so if you're ceremonially unclean, you're not fit to be in the presence of God because of what you do. It's not even your fault. You didn't even sin. It's just your livelihood. And so you're not even welcome into the presence of God. But that night, these angels came onto the scene and glory spread across the sky and they pronounced a message of hope to these shepherds that said, peace on earth and goodwill towards men in whom God is pleased. And then these angels proclaimed a message. You're going to find this amazing thing in the town. You need to go. And you'll find, here's how you'll know. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloth. Like all babies are like, okay, big deal. Yeah, but this baby will be lying in a manger. Like, that's weird. Why are they doing that? And so the shepherds go, and they, uh, they find it just as foretold. And what's crazy is these shepherds, <laughs> these shepherds become the first witnesses they go back and they start telling everybody, and everybody's in amazement. Like, what could this mean? Angels showing up to shepherds, shepherds finding babies, babies in mangers, and the word starts to spread. And my guess is, even though the text doesn't say it implicitly, well, my, my guess is the word starts to pre- spread up to a guy named Herod. And Herod is the king of the Jews, at least that's what he called himself. Ironically, part of what's going on here is a parody. Here's this guy who says he's king of the Jews, but we know who the real king of the Jew is. He's not this really rich, wealthy, arrogant, megalomaniac Herod. No, it's this tiny baby who looks helpless and hopeless inside a manger. It's a parody in the text. King Herod is so obsessed with King Herod, it's unbelievable. One day when I had cable still, I turned on the History Channel, and they did this thing on the History Channel about how King Herod has got a bad rap, and all these great things that he did, and then they showed us all these buildings and ways he revolutionized the Hebrew culture. The guy was a megalomaniac of the worst kind. 
He killed his own kids because he was afraid they would overthrow them. He had his own wife killed because he was afraid she was out to get him. And then he thought his wife's family might be a little upset, so he had some of them killed too. This guy's got major issues. So it's no surprise when these three, what we call them, wise men, we don't even know that there's three, by the way, it's just a number we made up because it fits really good in a song. You know, 18 just doesn't sound right. 18 kings of Orient are, I mean, it just doesn't fit, right? However the many the number is, these, these men from afar show up, and I won't go into all their story, but they show up. And by the way, they don't even show up that night. Just so you know, they probably show up at least a month later. could be even longer. They show up. And they go first to King Herod, and they say, we're looking for this king of the Jews. The what? Hey, I'm the king of the Jews. What are you talking about? Oh, no, no, there was a baby born. We know because we've been studying the stars, and it's been foretold in all these prophecies. And, and Herod goes, oh, oh, well, if there's another king, I'd like to know. I tell you what, when you find him, can you let me know where he is so I can come and, I mean, worship him too. And these wise men are wise enough to know not to tell Herod. But they finally find this baby and they bring the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, and they worship him. I hope you're okay. <laughs> so, what was it like in the manger? I think about this for a minute. Let's just put these pieces of the story together. To be Mary and Joseph, betrothed but not married, pregnant but not active, constantly under the watchful eye of others, judged, not even welcomed with the rest of the family. Having to care for a tiny baby that you've been told is the king of the world, but you're putting him in a trough in a manger, which, by the way, made the most sense of all of your options there among the animals but not exactly what you would want for your child, right? Shepherds, not welcome, can't really even worship God because of what they do for a living, but yet on this particular night, they were invited into the most holy of moments and then given the charge to go and tell others what they saw. Wise men who weren't even followers of God, they weren't even followers of Yahweh, they were from a foreign nation, worshipers of the stars, and yet now in this moment they take an important part. Herod, out to then kill all babies, issues a decree to make sure that wherever this king is, that he is killed and cannot usurp the throne. What kind of anxiety must that have created in Mary and Joseph? See, I tell you all this is before we even open to read this story. I tell you all this because when we tend to think of Christmas and we tend to look at our beautiful picture of Joseph and Mary and they look so peaceful, I'm, I'm guessing she looked just like that on that night. And here's baby Jesus and, you know, she just looks totally clean and she has these wonderful clothes on and I mean, she wasn't at all miserable and she's kneeling. And Yeah. Anyway, as we look at this and we gaze upon the peace and the beauty of it, sometimes we miss the fact that in the midst of the peace and the beauty is an amazing amount of struggle and pain and heartache and angst. So Christmas, even 2,000 years ago, brought with it all the same feelings we have today, doesn't it? See, I know this about you. You've got some great plans for Christmas. Gifts you're going to buy, things you're hoping you're get, family you want to see, people you want to connect with, and yet there is something in your life. There's somebody who's not there this year. There's an unmet dream or hope. 
For some of you, I know this, it's the job isn't paying what it used to pay, and you can't provide the Christmas you once provided or hoped to provide. For some of you, it's a failed marriage. You didn't want it this way, it's just the way it turned out. And now you're splitting time with the kids, and there are nights where you just weep. And in those nights where those things come to mind and they seem to overwhelm the lights and the hoopla and the beauty and the peace and the serenity of all these kinds of things, in those moments, you wonder, don't you, God, where are you in the midst of this? God, do you care? Like, are you even paying attention? And if part of what's going on in your life is your fault, you may even go further and say, God, Is it possible for you to even still love me? Given what I've done and where we are, and I know this is my fault. Have I gone too far? And it's with those questions and those anxieties in our heart we take ourselves to Luke chapter 2. Verse 4. Because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. I wonder what that means. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly... An angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. You will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. What in the world could all of this mean? See, if you're at all like me, you've heard the story so many times, you can literally tell it without looking at it. And that's not just because I read it this week. You can literally tell it, right, without looking at it. And at the very least, you know some songs that come to mind. It's kind of like, to give this a bad analogy, it's kind of like going to lunch after church today and you decide you want a hamburger. You know exactly what a hamburger tastes like, right? There's really no doubt in your mind what the hamburger is going to be. What you may not know is whether, what restaurant you're going to and what sauce they're going to put on it and whether you're going to put lettuce and tomatoes or something else. It's like you've you got to figure out a way to dress it up. So like the story never changes, but every year at Christmas you come to it and here's the temptation because of that. It's like, well, yeah, it's just the same story that I've heard over and over and over again. But there's a beauty in this story. There's a simplicity in the story that if we miss it, we miss everything. And it's so easy to miss it, isn't it? We're running around doing kids' plays and 
running around and, and Christmas music everywhere and decorations and buying presents and decorating and, and stress and fighting with family about whose house you're going to and who's making what meals and who's responsible for what and, and you know that they're not going to show up and do their part and that's just going to be more for you and it's stressful, isn't it? And you know what? You're no different than anybody has ever been. Christmas has been stressful for as long as I know. In fact, roughly 800 years ago, a guy named St. Francis of Assisi, how many of you guys have heard of St. Francis of Assisi? My Catholic brothers and sisters, okay. St. Francis of Assisi was a priest around roughly 1200 to 1300, around that time frame. And in his culture there in the kind of the hills, these hills of Italy, the people in his culture had become so obsessed with Christmas and the hoopla around Christmas. Hmm, sound familiar? And the people had become so greedy. St. Francis of Assisi was broken and trying to figure out how in the world am I going to get the message of Christmas, this thing that now we've been talking about at that point for roughly 1,200 years. How am I going to get it to come alive for my people today? And he stood inside his cathedral, as the story is told, and he realized there's not enough room here if everybody in the town were to gather. And so he decided to create a live nativity scene in a cave that was big and open. And as far as we know in history, there may be another place other than the first one, which clearly was live and not fake. This is the first live nativity scene to take place roughly 800 years ago, and now you know. And here's why. St. Francis had this dream to gather the people together back underneath the original story and just remind them of its simplicity and beauty and glory and humility and life-changing message. So another saint by the name of St. Bonaventure, he tells us a story. He writes it out. And he says that literally St. Francis gathered together a manger and he put hay inside it and he gathered together some animals and there was a live nativity taking place and he actually got a little baby and he laid him in the manger and as St. Bonaventure tells the story, the people of the town gathered together and they began to sing and literally there was so much movement and power and impact from the story itself unfolding before them that their voices rang out and bounced around in the mountains and you could hear it ringing out for ways off as they just sang glory to God. Glory to God. He came to change the story. St. Francis, as St. Bonaventure writes about it, he stood before that little baby and he held him in his arms and we're told that he just wept. Tears pouring down his face as he saw a real baby lying in a real manger and it really dawned on him what happened. See, maybe you don't really know what happened. Yeah, Jesus was born, and it probably was not a silent night. Yeah, Jesus was born, and there was no room for him in the inn. Jesus was born, and these shepherds showed up and made Mary and Joseph probably a little uncomfortable. Wise men came and brought with them their, their presence. But what really happened that night was God made an emphatic stamp on all of history. I love you. I love you. You don't ever have to wonder if I love you. I love you. If ever you're doubting if I care, look at this. I love you. If ever you're wondering if I have enough grace and mercy to forgive you, look at me. I'm a baby and a manger. I love you. 
I've left all of heaven and the glory and the riches and the prominence of being worshipped as king of eternity, and I took on flesh. And not only that, I became a baby, but not only that, I went among some animals. Not only that, I went into their feeding trough to let you know so you don't ever have to wonder. I love you. And in those hard moments, where you start to think that maybe you've gone too far or God has abandoned you or he's not present anymore, you can always come back to this text, to this story, to this moment and remember again and kneel down again like shepherds and wise men and Mary and Joseph. This baby means something from God because God loves you. But there's a great question. What does God's love mean? It means something. Here's the way a guy named Paul tells it. And just so you know, before we show it to you, the text, Paul uh, calls himself the chief of sinners. He is the chief offender against God. He is the worst of the worst of the worst in his mind. And yet here's what he says this means. Turn with me to Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. This is Paul writing. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. Now look at this for a second. Go back for, with me for a second. Notice it says once we, we. No, Paul's not saying you, you idiots. You're such a bunch of morons. Like, man, you're obsessed with this world. He's like, no, we, me, us, all of us. We were so foolish and disobedient and running away from God and, and disobeying God. We were misled. We were just obsessed with all the wrong things. Our lives were full of all the wrong things. But then notice what he says next, verse 4. But, and this is a really big but, that didn't come out right. <laughs> when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love. Now, stop there. There came a moment in time where God said, look, no matter what you've done, no matter what's going on, no matter where you've been, I'm going to show you my kindness and my love. And then he says, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Simply because God is good and has a lot of mercy, he said, I'm going to show you my love. And then he washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. And all of this, all of this began in one very simple, humble moment with a baby and a manger. Where God said, I love you. And I'm going to reveal it to you in the most obvious way possible. Verse 6. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. See, this little baby born in a manger is so much more than sweet little baby Jesus born in a manger. This is so 
crucial to you and I understanding who God is, his profound love for us. Because the way it works and the human condition, see, we can't see God. We can't wrap our heads around him sometimes because he seems so far off and so big and so otherly that God gave us a very real, tangible example of his love so that we don't ever have to wonder ever again. It's here. It's a baby. It's Jesus lying in a manger. But that's not just it. He'll grow up and become a man and be faithful to God in every way. He won't do all those things that Paul just said we do. He won't do those things. He'll stay faithful to the very end, even unto death. Part of the reason, perhaps, that God chose shepherds is because we're told in the book of Isaiah that one day this Messiah, this little baby laying in a manger, one day he'll be led like a sheep to the slaughter. If you don't know anything about how this process goes, I'm not an expert in this, but I've read some stuff. It's pretty grotesque. I'll save you some of the gory details. But the sheep trust the shepherd so much because he's been there protecting it and watching out for it and raising it and caring for it. That when the shepherd leads the sheep to the moment of slaughter, the sheep just goes along. And when the shepherd takes the life of the sheep, the sheep just go along. And the reason the sheep could do that It's because it just trusts that the shepherd knows what's best. And the shepherd will only do what is right. And we're told this baby lying in a manger is like that sheep. And that doesn't make sense. If you think the shepherd analogy replies to uh, Rome or, or Israel, these, these Pharisees who killed Jesus, and you think, well, so what, Jesus just trusted the Pharisees and the Roman executioners to do what's best for him? No, see, the one who was leading him from beginning to end was God the Father. And God loved you so much. He didn't just give a baby. He gave a baby that was a sheep that would go to a slaughter following his father so that you would never have to wonder, does he love me? I want you to notice again, verse 7, because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Confidence. Are you absolutely confident right now that God is with you? Are you absolutely confident that God has not abandoned you? That no matter what it is you're dealing with or struggling with in this really hard season and lonely season for some, that God loves you and he has made it known to you through the power of his Holy Spirit. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to quit on you. Are you confident in that? Because if you're not, do what you need to do today to get there. Accept it in faith. Cry out to God. Show me. Reveal to me. And he'll say, I did. I gave you my son. And then believe in what he's told you. This, this past week, I was, a, I was playing football with my son, Levi. He's my second, um, and, I, and I adore this kid. Special little boy. He absolutely loves football. I've done something right in his life so far. <laughs> and he wants to play football 24-7. His version of football is, Daddy, 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 you sit in front of the couch, and he's always got like a balloon, a ball, or something, and I'm going to get this ball to the couch, so I'm like guarding the end zone, and uh, basically I have to let him score at least more times than me. Otherwise, there's a little bit of uh, poor sportsmanship we have to learn. So this is the game. Like, he's got to, like, jump over me. It's a knee to the face. It's a, you know, it's a head to my face. It's like over and over and over again. I'm getting beat up while he scores a touchdown. And this is football to him. He's five. Anyway, 
So in this particular moment, his littlest brother, Nehemiah, my, my not quite two-year-old, he wants to play too, so he runs over and his job is to tackle me, step on me, headbutt me, anything he can so that his brother can score. Now the oldest son, Matthias, is on the outside looking in. And he's watching it unfold, and he hasn't decided whether he wants to get involved or not. So Matthias, my oldest, who's six years old, he decides the way he's going to get in the game is he says, okay, here it is. I'm going to get on whoever's team scores the next touchdown. Well, the only way I can score a touchdown is by stopping my second from getting to the couch. So I'm like, okay, I'm talking smack. Oh, yeah, you're going to be on my team because there's no way they're going to beat me. Sure enough, Levi comes in. Nehemiah steps on me. It's a mess. Levi scores, and now Matthias is going to be on Levi's team. I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's not fair. Three on one, you're going to beat me. I'm talking smack. I'm talking it up. Well, then I decided to take a different approach. I'm going to be, like, bold and braggadocious. That's it. It's going to take all three. You better get mommy over here. You got no chance. You're going to bring it. No way. Daddy's going to take you down. And they're all talking smack back. You know, I'm teaching my kids the court rules one day. (laughs) It's like Jesus would do, right? And so then I make this, I know I was going somewhere like, this is great, where are you going? Then I make this statement. All right, here's how it goes. If I score the next touchdown, I'm going to take Matthias off your team, and he has to join my team. And Levi's like, no way you're going to score. He's talking smack, and Matthias goes like, this is powerful. It was like one of these moments where I'm like, it's awesome, stop playing football, this is great. Matthias, right as I reach out to tackle him, I reach out to grab him, he steps back, and he says, no, daddy. You can't separate me from Levi's team just like you can't separate me from God's love. <laughs> You're right. Sorry, the Levi scores a touchdown. I'm like, no, time out, time out. That's not fair. I was like, man, see, now here's the thing. I remember one time we had a Christmas and it was miserable. Because uh, my wife and I had been trying for years to get pregnant, and we couldn't get pregnant. I know some of you know the story. And one day we found out that we were pregnant, but my wife had an ectopic pregnancy. The baby gets trapped in the fallopian tube, and they had to w- rush my wife the next morning into surgery. She was bleeding internally, take, t- took out her fallopian tube. It was a big deal. So after years of not getting pregnant, wondering, God, where are you? I, guys, I don't know how to make this clear enough. The question in my head over and over and over again is, God, what have I done that you stopped loving me? What have I done to go so far beyond your grace and mercy that you've given up on me that you won't allow us to have a baby and then we have one and it dies? And I remember at least coming to some element of peace with God at that moment and then getting to Christmas that year. And it was hard. It's hard. Because everybody else is gathering with family. We're sipping and sending and opening presents with my sister and her kids and Rachel's brother and his kids. And it's like, everybody's got kids. Everybody but me. I don't know what I did, God. I don't know why you're so mad, God. But apparently you stopped loving me. Somewhere around that same time, um, my wife made me this cool little plate. Um, I made her one too, but I don't have it, and I'll show her cheese and not mine. But and uh, we just went to one of those pottery places, and this sits in my office. And I know you probably can't see this real well, but um, let's see which camera we're we using. This one says peace. This one says happiness, and this one says love. And they've got these little Asian symbols on it. I don't speak anything Asian at all, but. Um, it was at least interesting to me that 
four years later, my uh, Asian son would be born. And when I held Matthias in my arms here in the mission house for the church in Christmas of 2009, I held him and I, I thought, God loves me. And look, I realize not everybody in this room has a happy ending to their story. Not everybody in this room has the moment that you can look at and say, look, I know God loves me because he came through. You know, he, he answered my prayers. He, he did what I've always been asking him to, to do. I know it's my story. And so I'm not trying to downplay yours, but I'm just trying to say this. God is good. Don't quit on God. You don't know the end of the story. But you know the beginning. You don't know all that God has a store yet to redeem your pain. You don't know all that he has planned to bring his love and his faithfulness into your life to show you that he has been with you every step of the way, just like the hospital in India. And I remember watching PV just be broken, struggling with this. He's showing me this hospital and doesn't understand what God is up to and why he's doing it. And then today, man, I can't wait to talk to PV and hear him tell stories about how God's leveraging that for his good today. You don't know you have the beginning of the story, little baby lying in a manger, to let you know he loves you. John says it this way in 1 John, chapter 4, verse 9, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Here's my challenge to you as we wrap up now. May God make this Christmas one of profound love. For those of you who are struggling this Christmas, I pray that God reveals himself to you in the story of Christmas over and over and over again. It gives you comfort that he's not done writing your story. Hang on and trust him. For those of you who are in a great place, you're like, man, what's all this talk about stressful times at Christmas? I just want to encourage you, would you open up your heart and your home? Would you possibly even open your wallet to take care of somebody else who's in a hard place? could be in India, could be here at the church, could be in the church or in the community or work. Would you just be considerate as you look around and say, God, you loved me first before I even asked for you to love me, so God, I wanna love others before they even ask. Would you just be open and aware, scale back on your own Christmas celebrations and parties and gifts and just consider, because if you go on and read the rest of 1 John 4, ain't even chapter three, you'll find the statement about God's love being in us through Jesus, but that God's love being in us as we love others. In fact, he even goes so far as to say, you cannot say you love God and not love others. Would you consider being the hands and feet of God this Christmas? And to that end, what I want to do is I want to pray. And I want to pray that God move and sweep in your hearts and in your homes, giving you peace and challenge through the Christmas message. Father God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you, Father for your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives. And God, we just pray right now, in the name of Jesus Christ, thank you for loving us. Help us to embrace that love. And God, just like my son, Matthias, help us to know, Lord, to truly know that there is nothing, nothing that could separate us from your love. And God, I pray, open our eyes, our hearts, to what you're doing in the world, to helping those who feel so unloved so unresourced, so uncared for, so alone. 
and to love them. In Jesus' name, amen.